0: next episode of what's next for the eu a podcast brought to you by the european people's party group the european union faces many challenges today from within and outside of its borders from tackling climate change supporting european industry to dealing with competitive neighbors more than ever before people are divided over the eu its purpose and the role that it should play that's exactly why the european union has launched a new conference on the future of europe an initiative designed to ask EU citizens what they want and expect from the EU. In this podcast, we try to go beyond the headlines to explore what the EU is and is not doing and what it should be doing in the future. My name is Georgina Wright and I'm the head of the Europe Programme at the Paris-based think tank, Alstice Moldein. Hello, everyone. First of all, I hope you had a wonderful summer and a good start to the new term. It's been a pretty busy one, with the fall of Kabul and crisis in Afghanistan dominating our headlines, I sat down with two of the best thinkers on EU defence at the moment to ask them, is Afghanistan finally the trigger to get the EU to do more on defence? Joining me today was Arnaud Donjon, Member of the European Parliament and Chair of the European Parliament's Security and Defence Subcommittee. And prior to joining the European Parliament, Arnaud worked at the French Ministry of Defence and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Also joining me today was Dr. Claudia Major, head of the International Security Division at the SWP, the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. So what did I learn? Well, EU defense is best understood as a dance. Sometimes you go forward, but mostly you cha-cha on the side. But the important thing is that you keep on dancing. It's just that the EU might need to get its choreography right at the start. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Sit back and listen. Hello and welcome, Claudia and Arnaud, to this podcast. Hello. Hello. It is a pleasure to be hosting you um, today. Um, In today's podcast, I wanted to reflect on the latest developments in Kabul and Afghanistan more broadly and ask you whether you think they will make a difference to the EU's debates on security and defence. Arnold, perhaps I can start with you first. Um, The fall of Kabul happened quickly, so quickly, in fact, that Allied forces were scrambling to get out their nationals and all those who helped them throughout Uh, Their presence in Afghanistan before the US troops left at the end of August. Looking at the situation right now, is there anything you think the International Alliance and in particular EU countries could have done differently?
1: Yes, indeed. I think uh, we were all shocked by the images, but we have to go beyond the emotions uh, and I hope that we will learn some lessons. But indeed, uh, looking at the the previous months before the fall of Kabul, the first thing the Allies could have done together is talking about the situation. Uh, I just recall that we had some NATO consultation uh, in springtime, and it was already obvious that something would happen, not that quickly probably, but uh, we all knew that uh, there was an agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban uh, for a withdrawal of the the U.S. troops, Uh, so it was coming uh and uh, at uh, different occasion they were on the agenda possibilities to to discuss it and it was put aside by uh, nato officials by the nato secretary general by americans sometimes like well we will see what what what's going to happen but it's it's not an issue uh, so discussions uh were not were not there where when it was needed so discussion Uh, Leading to planification, this was not properly done, uh, obviously, so we we, we have to go more into details, maybe, but but that's the first failure uh, I see before everything everything happens. After that, uh, talking about the events themselves. Well, it's always uh, easy to criticize. It's always easy to be outraged by by uh, so disturbing images. Uh, but uh, uh, I think uh, we have also to be aware that in the conditions, uh, under the circumstances, uh, different uh, Allied forces of each of the member states uh, did did uh, an extraordinary extraordinary jobs. So it was it was very very difficult because everything happened so quickly so uh, we have also to be grateful for those who who, who managed to evacuate a lot of people and who uh, managed to secure uh, as good as they can the, the the Kabul airport but of course lessons have to be learned and, and drawn from this uh, situation.
0: Fascinating and I'm reminded that on Twitter, we had sort of hourly updates of seeing pictures of our diplomats, you know, trying to process visas or even uh, military just being stationed outside and trying to secure the airport. Claudia, do you agree with Arnold's assessment there?
2: Oh, I, I totally agree. I think he, he made it very clearly where, where we... Where we made mistakes or where we didn't live up to our own expectations, and where the ally, the alliance, uh, the cooperation with our biggest ally, the U.S., didn't really work. Um, you 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 actually started with saying, "Will it make a difference in defense?" Or well, that's actually what Anu um, finished with his his analysis. And to be very honest, I, I'm I'm worried that it will not make a big difference in practice in the long term. And that's very sad and very worrying because now we have debates and the defense ministers are committed and the high representative has ideas. But in the end, it's about the member states who have to deliver on defense. And then the question is, has the experience of the last weeks in Afghanistan been the wake up call the Europeans needed? And to be very honest, I don't think it. Will it push the Europeans to spend more on defense, to spend better on defense, to better cooperate, to actually take finally defense seriously? And, and I'm not not convinced. I mean, Afghanistan the last weeks have taught us many lessons we knew already. It showed us the lack of political will. We knew that. The, apparently the British defense minister asked the Europeans to stay in June at the NATO meeting and the Europeans, that's also the truth, didn't really want. It revealed us the lack of military capabilities and our dependence on the US. But if we are honest, that's also something we Europeans knew already. We remember Syria 2019 and many, many other times before um, in the past. The shortfalls we have in enablers, in lift and all those things, we knew it already. It has just become again, very painful. I think what is maybe a little bit worse (laughs) than as a lesson is it really affected our credibility as Western countries. Those countries who have been engaged in Afghanistan, we lost credibility with this very unpleasant end. And there's maybe another lesson which, which we just discover is that if you look at the crisis map, the worldwide map of crisis, we increasingly see where the US, where Europe is not present, but where Russia and China are present. So what does it mean for our ability, our willingness to actually shape that's a big word, to shape the international order. So altogether, my fear is that Afghanistan taught us, again, the lessons we knew already, politically weak, militarily weak, dependent on the US. There's nothing new. That's why I fear that we have in the moment kind of big emotional moment, but I'm very much worried that it will not translate into action because in the end, Europeans, I'm afraid, don't
0: really care. I mean, thank you for that. And also slightly uh, pessimistic, I say I'm all sort of, you know, nodding um, into many of the things that you were saying. Just before maybe we can look at sort of the EU's, you know, potential action in this field, because a lot of what you just said, Claudia, was, uh, you know, member states or EU countries own political will and abilities, let alone talking about the EU. But you're, you know, you're sat in in Berlin, I think, right now. Um, And, and then Arnaud, obviously, a French citizen, we've got two very big elections coming up in in Germany and in France. Will that make a difference, do you think, uh, to that political will?
1: Well, uh, I I fully agree with what what Claudia uh, has just said, she perfectly expressed what I had in mind, um, talking about an emotional moment. Uh, Emotions and symbols are important, of course, in foreign policy, but uh, it's probably the field where uh, it disappears and it vanished also quite quickly uh, uh, in the the longer run. So, will it have uh, an importance uh, in the coming political debates in France? Uh, It will. Uh, But my fear is that uh, it will translate into, uh, you know, this famous song featuring Alain Delon like words, words, words. Mm -hmm. Uh, Always words, more words, but uh, at the end of the day, some kinds of empty words. So we will talk about defense, we will talk about European defense, we will talk about the need for being more autonomous, we will talk about the need for being more uh, robust and consistent uh, between us Europeans. But how will it translate concretely into actions? I have my doubts. Uh, Because uh, as uh, Claudia was mentioning, uh, we have so big dependencies for decades now. Um, Not only in capabilities, in concrete capabilities, but also I would say in the mindset. We have totally acknowledged that we were depending on others. So now we are trying to wake up. We had many occasions to wake up. But every time we wake up, Uh, we uh, find very quickly pretext to to be comfortable again in the transatlantic alliance and to make as if nothing so serious has happened. And you will see with Afghanistan, Afghanistan is far away from us. Most of our countries were already disengaging for a long time from Afghanistan. Uh, So my fear is... uh, we have a lot of crises nearer than Afghanistan. We have Ukraine, we have Syria, we have Libya, we have Africa, we have Sahel. So a lot of crises are closest to us, uh, but it doesn't change uh, dramatically uh, what we undertake. So, so Afghanistan, I, I feel that Afghanistan cannot be the wake-up call. It is on the short run. But on the longer run, uh, uh, it is not the wake-up call uh, that we all expect. So we have to probably uh, wait for another crisis to um, to shake us uh, more decisively. Uh, You know, even in in the latest in the in the um, yes in the last years, the the wake-up calls were Trump's attitude and Trump strong words. Uh, and Trump is no longer there, uh, and the second thing was uh, migration uh, crisis. Uh, but uh, but uh, even on migration crisis, I, I'm not sure that we sustain, I would say, the, uh, the effort. So, um, so my fear is that uh, we will have a lot of debates, we will have a lot of talks, uh, but concrete actions uh, which are needed and dramatically needed uh, I'm not sure that we will have that. On the contrary, if I would be pessimistic, uh, I would say that the fact that we have German elections in September, French election in springtime, uh, it might again delay some action because the Germans will wait for the French uh, to have uh, their election and once the French are uh, settled, uh, it will be already almost one year from now. So the coming year will be discussion, plans about the French presidency of European Union, about the uh, German uh, coalition government. Uh, so it will be a lot of internal talks uh, before uh, trying to reach a decision, a common decision, a Franco-German uh, impulse, but probably not before uh, next year. So I hope I'm too pessimistic, uh, but I have seen so many times over the last 2 3 decades so many times of um, i would say uh, uh, deceived uh, hopes and deceived the wake up calls that uh, unfortunately i'm 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 a bit skeptical
0: and we will come on to on, on sort of the debate and the EU wide debate, of course, that is likely to to take place. Um, before I do, though, I mean, Claudia, do, do, do you agree with Anna's assessment and, um, you know, from your view in, in Berlin? Do you think Arnold's right that we just need to wait a year until we really would see significant movement, if any?
2: I think we have indeed a kind of strategic hibernation in front of us Uh, with the election, with the coalition. We don't know when we in Germany will have a coalition. It might be before Christmas, it might be next spring. So there's really a long period where the two main countries in Europe who are really decisive uh, in in taking Europe forward will be totally inward looking. On the other hand, I mean, it obviously depends on the coalition government we are going to get in Germany. Normally, there's a strong continuity in German uh, foreign policy and European politics that can be good. Uh, But that can also be bad, given um, that it has not been extremely proactive in pushing European defence. I think the key question is whether you change defence attitudes with revolutions or with evolutions. And revolutions or wake up calls, as Arnoux said, we had them in the past, a lot. We had the Libya operation, we could even go back to the Balkans and say this was a nightmare for Europeans. Um, We could talk about Crimea. So there are actually many wake-up calls. So you might, wondering, you might be wondering how many more we need um, if that has not been enough. So I think it actually boils down to does a country feel threatened or not? And if I look at my country, to a large extent, it doesn't feel threatened. Something that really changed German defense policy was the annexation of Crimea and the war on the Donbass Um, in Ukraine. This really led to a change in German defense policy. The budget increased, uh, big reform of the armed forces, new white book on defense, so many things. But it was was to a large extent driven by solidarity with our Eastern allies and within NATO. Germany felt threatened, but not so much as to fundamentally change as it happened, for example, in the Baltic countries or Poland. So on the one hand, I'm I'm like Arnaud, I'm like where's the wake-up call? On the other hand, I'm not sure I really want to see the wake-up call it would need. So it's it's a bit of a tricky question. Um, so um, but uh, I, I, we, we arrive at the same at the same conclusion, um, Arnaud and myself that I think it will continue as it was in the last year. slowly, not enough, too too little, too late. Mm. And that's that's i would love to come to a more optimistic conclusion but uh, history teaches us at least from the 20 years that's what's happening
0: well let's let's take a closer look at, at the eu debate of security and defense so we know that the afghanistan crisis and crises before that as you both mentioned have provoked some hard thinking in eu circles about what the eu should be doing in the defence space. Um, And we know that the EU is planning to kind of publish a a global compass, so a sort of white book that would look at a common threat assessment to be able to say, well, these are all the the common threats that member states see, and perhaps even prioritise those threats in in order to enable common action. And that's due to come out sort of around March time, March 2022, during the French presidency of the Council of the EU, which Anna was mentioning just now. But some of our listeners may not be that familiar um, with how the debate has evolved around EU security and defence policy. Um, and so I'm going to ask you maybe a very you know, straightforward and easy question, which is why isn't the EU a more credible
2: defence actor? Um, Claudia, maybe I can start with you. It's not an easy question, to be honest. Um, uh, I would think that there's maybe two two big reasons and several small. I think the the first big reason, and I'm putting it very bluntly here, because EU defense, EU defense, not European defense, but EU defense within the framework of the European Union, is for many states not a priority. That sounds maybe a little bit brutal. Um, but it's not a priority for many European states to invest into the EU and to turn the EU into a real reliable defense actor. Um, It doesn't mean that defense doesn't matter. Many countries like Poland or the Baltic countries do invest in defense, but they don't consider the European Union the best framework for their defense efforts. And that is related to a second reason. And this is we have an alternative defense framework in Europe, and that is NATO. Um, And NATO has more or less delivered in the past For many countries, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, NATO is the life assurance, particularly since the annexation of Crimea and the war on Donbass and Russia being an adversary again. They consider NATO being their life insurance. It's the biggest standing military alliance with the planning process, nuclear deterrence, all, all those things. So it offers... Security, defense, survival for many European states. Many problems, certainly. The U.S. is not an easy partner. We mentioned that earlier in our debate that they haven't coordinated very well before Afghanistan or not at all. But for many countries, the idea is why we have a running system, more or less running system. Why should we change it? You can also, if you look back when the Central and Eastern European countries actually entered NATO and the EU. The EU was for most most political economic reasons and defense was in NATO. So they organized also their defense setting according to NATO standards. And the EU is a late comer in defense. So from their perspectives, like we have one that works, why we should build up another one. So you could Mm -hmm. add other reasons. You could say, yes, Poland is not afraid of the same thing like Italy, though they have different threat perceptions. Um, But I think the, the main reasons are really the little trust countries have in the EU structures, the existence of NATO and the US. And a very important point I really like to stress is that there is a difference between EU defense and European defense. And if you talk about European defense, we have countries like the UK, who remains an important player. We have also Norway, we have Turkey. So I think we we should avoid this kind of playing the institutional boxes against each other. Here, NATO, and there's there's the EU, and one is good and the other is not. And it's not about institutional beauties. It's about Europeans being capable to act. And that's why I personally prefer European defence and not EU defence.
0: Very interesting. And also because this global compass is supposed to be looking at partnerships and, you know, what the EU collectively, uh, the EU 27 but also the EU as a whole can can do with partners. Um, Arnold, you know, you've been looking at defence for, for a long time, both in France, and then now as a, as a member of the European Parliament. Do you, do you agree with Claudia's assessment? And, and if so, could you, you know, what, what real role could the EU play in this space that could perhaps be of value uh, to the NATO Alliance, but also to other partners?
1: Well, I fully agree with what uh, Claudia said. She's perfectly uh, sum up uh, why EU is not an, a major actor in defense. Uh, I would stress two things, two dimensions. The one is historical. The um, uh, EU was not meant for defense. The uh, European community and then European Union was meant for prosperity, uh, mostly uh, turn uh, to the economical dimension uh, of, of, of Europe. Uh, NATO was to deal with uh, security and defense issues. And it was like that from the origin, I would say. So uh, so once for uh, uh, 40, 50 years, you have been dealing with one issue or one dimension and negle- neglecting the security and defense issue, it's quite difficult. To re-enter the game, even we, if we had wake-up calls, and even if there are some uh, ambitions, uh, political ambitions behind, but uh, but uh, uh, in terms of expertise, in terms of uh, political credibility, in terms of institutional mechanism, uh, EU was lagging far, far, far behind NATO. So uh, uh, this is where we are now. It's it's a product of an historical trend. The second issue is that uh eu in terms of defense is very heterogeneous Uh, not just because of the different military cultures and military histories but uh, just to keep in mind we have neutral country countries in europe you have ireland you have sweden you have uh, uh, austria and even within the neutral country uh, neutrality doesn't mean exactly the same depending on where you are so when talking now about military intervention you will have the the irish people being quite reluctant whereas sweden at the same time is a neutral country but is very keen on making some efforts budgetary and operationally on defense so this is this heterogeneity you have in europe you have country with almost no army malta Uh, Cyprus, some Baltic states, very, very uh, tiny armies for obvious reasons, and you have then big military structures like the French. You have different uh, modes of of decision-making process. You have the parliamentary army in Germany and in most of the European countries. You have a very vertical executive military process in France where the president... Alone can decide that uh, he will engage troops. So you know all this heterogeneity uh, makes uh, EU also uh, difficult uh, to to be uh, an actor in in the field of defense, where where you have to be robust, consistent, um, and and quick. So 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 it's a bit of a contradiction in in terms to have EU as a as a military actor. But having said that, uh, nevertheless, I think. Everybody is is aware, I think, since the Yugoslav wars, the Balkan wars in the 90s, that was a real wake-up call. And that was when the the Europeans understood that uh, uh, they needed something. And it was Franco-British initiative in 98, Blair and Chirac, that, again, put this idea of, of, of defense at the European level, Europeans to be more responsible they put this idea back on the, on the front stage. Um, I think efforts have been made, some results have been achieved, uh, not to be too pessimistic. Wh- where we stand now is really question of an existential question for all, all the political forces in Europe, in each member state. Do we really want to take uh, the destiny in our hands or do we want to keep a kind of a comfort, even if it's an illusionary comfort, of uh, a transatlantic alliance that will forever take care of our security? This is where we stand. And uh, uh, I still have my doubt that everybody is fully aware of that, uh, of, of that equation. A lot of people's People think, and it was the case with Biden coming to power, that, okay, Trump was a kind of an accident. um, uh, And uh, with Biden and the Democrats, we will come back to the good old days of the comfortable transatlantic alliance and the U.S. will ultimately uh, be the life insurance of the Europeans. I do believe, I do deeply believe that it is no longer the case uh, and that we have to to understand in in everywhere in Europe. But I'm not sure that everybody understands that. So I think we will for some time, again, uh, continue with uh, one one step forward, two step, I would not say uh, backward, but at least one step forward and one step side on the side. (laughs) And, you know, uh, advancing and progressing uh, very, very, very slowly.
0: I'm now imagining a sort of cha-cha dance uh, um, when we talk about EU defence. Um, Claudia, I know you wanted to come in, but I, I, I just wanted to, as I was listening to both of you speak, it, it strikes me that there is a necessity to be talking about EU defence, but of course not in isolation. So perfectly you know, taking into account what has happened and of course what is happening outside of EU structures. Is there anything you wanted to add, Claudia?
2: Yeah, first, I like the idea of dancing European defense, but that's maybe a a, a wonderful topic ahead. Um, I think there's one, two two things. The first, what Arno said at the end, for me, is really a key thing. Um, It's not European, the willingness to invest more in Europeans, Europe's capacity to act should not only be a reaction to, oh, the Americans have other priorities. So that's the kind of reactive way. We need to do more in Europe because the Americans are not longer around. Um, But I also pointed to the other um, dimension, which is what I would call the more intrinsic or proactive dimension. It's to say we have succeeded in building in Europe a marvelous political economic thing called the European Union. We should have the ambition to be able to protect what we have built or put differently, a bit more kind of emotions in it. Um, We should be ashamed we are not able so I think those two dimensions together, the reaction, oh, the Americans are not longer around, and we should have, the, those two should team up. Um, but then again, I think we should, the EU should avoid any competition with NATO. It, it will not work. So what actually is, is, um, is at stake for the EU, it has to be attractive, as attractive as NATO or more attractive. And the EU has things to offer that NATO cannot offer. That is the defense industrial um, cooperation tools, incentives cooperation. The U.S. is great in incentivizing cooperation. We have all those non-military tools that are coming far more important in defense. Classical defense or defense issues are moving out of the military dimension. You can easily coerce a state, put pressure on a state, power, without using military tools, by using cyber or economic pressure or technologies. But if defense is moving out of the traditional military realm, then the Commission comes in because it has so many tools in the non-military realm. If it's about regulations for new technologies, the Commission has the tools. So I think the, the EU has to think about to become attractive in the areas where it has the tools and not doing kind of fighting the wrong fight with NATO, but kind of thinking about what is the added value the EU has and what it can bring to the table what NATO or others can't. And then together we arrive at a European capacity to act in the military domain, the civilian, the economic, technological and and many others.
0: Yeah, that's great. And of course, with with every sort of new proposal and new commission ability to act comes with that very important democratic debate that takes place in the European Parliament, but also national parliaments as well. The one thing I haven't heard either of you say is uh, this, what we heard the high representative talk about a couple of days ago, which was that the EU needed a rapid reactionary force uh, that it could easily deploy in times of crisis. Um, Arnold, do you agree about that?
1: Ideally, yes. Uh, Who would refuse that? Who would counter that? Of course, ideally, yes. And it has been... uh, Claim for the last 20 years, but in 20 years I have heard that I don't know 10 times, uh, and nothing happened. It it already exists on the paper. Theoretically, we can deploy troops. Uh, we can, we have battle groups. We we had many ambitions of having uh, intervention, whatever you call it, uh, quick reaction force or whatsoever. Uh, we had many many projects on the paper. We even have some uh, troops training already for that purpose, but it never happened. It never happened because ultimately, it's a political decision. That's the. That's the biggest political decision you have to take, and it's at, at the level of the member states, and it won't change in the near future. So, yes, indeed, we should work towards this, uh, but uh, being, being well aware of the limits and being well aware of the constraints, that's why I'm always a bit reluctant when I, when I hear this uh, very ambitious call you know, because I know that it will not be followed by action in the the near future. So it will be deceiving for for the people and the public opinion will say, well, we were promised a rapid reaction force, where is it? And once again, it will be put as a failure of Europe to deliver. So I would be much more modest. Uh, I think those who want to do things EU should allow them to do things on on his behalf, I would say. We have that in the treaty, by the way. We have an article in the treaty, Article 44, which allows the the, the member states to give a mandate to those member states who want to do things, uh, maybe in advance, maybe more than the others, maybe deeper than the others. Uh, we should be flexible. I do believe in flexibility. I do believe in ad hoc format, because if we want to 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 look for an ideal solution where the 27 will do exactly the same at the same time with an unanimity uh, in this field, in this very specific field of uh, defense, it will not happen. So I do believe in flexibility, pragmatism, as Claudia was saying, not to counter or to... Uh, to be uh, uh, an alternative to NATO. NATO is there for a very specific purpose of collective defence and it does that pretty well and it won't change in the near future. Uh, But EU should be able to respond to some crises. As EU27 will not be able to do that and to deliver quickly on that, then EU27 should allow... According to different scenarios, some countries to deliver on its behalf. Otherwise, it will not, it will not work. So uh, uh, I would favour pragmatic and flexible uh, steps ahead instead of big calls, big slogans that will not uh, lead uh, anywhere.
0: And on that, Claudia, very quickly, um, do you think that do you see a role for the Euro- European Parliament in fostering that debate? Um, or is it, you know, should, do you think we should be talking about these kind of things more about, you know, what's in the treaty, uh, what the EU can actually do? Because um, it strikes me at least that that seems to be one of the main problems when we talk about EU defence.
2: So you want me actually to give Arnaud some homework, what you should do in the next week. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> I think they already make a really great effort to steer the debate about European defence um so that's 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 really important to to bring this this topic to the public um but in the end um we talked already about eu defense and european defense in the end it's about each european state it's up to each european state to make an effort in defense so we also need the national parliaments we need the german parliament the french not so much because it halfway works in your country, Arno, but we need it in other countries that the parliament, parliamentarian, the public engages in the European defence debate. Um, but but really, I think it's important to to underline again: it's the European countries who need to improve their 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 political commitment and their capabilities to make a difference. And if all Europeans have better armed forces, they will be better able to act in a NATO framework, any EU framework, in a coalition of the willing framework, whatever framework. It's about a single set of forces, so the European armed forces together that are able to do something. Another question that I was wondering when I heard this proposal, not only that we had so many, why don't you just implement what you had in the past, which would be nice before starting a new one. But I was also wondering is, is this the most pressing thing we need? What is the next scenario of a conflict? Or what is the future of conflict? And I don't have the perfect answer to that. Um, but it's it's obviously easier to look back of what we would have needed in the last crisis. It's awfully difficult to understand how the next crisis Europeans will face and in which they want to engage, how it's going to look like. But I think this is something which is touched upon in the strategic compass debates, um, but something we need to think about. Uh, what is the future of conflict? Who is, who is doing what with what means and, and what theater? And that's that's a very difficult question.
0: And that's brilliant, because you've probably given me also things to think about in, in the next podcast that we hear. Um, very lastly, I, I'd like to finish on a broader question, which I ask all my guests um, on this podcast, is if you could sum up the future of Europe in one word, um, what would that be? Arnaud? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh,
1: delivering. Delivering. It's... Uh, it's uh, for for the for the specific topic we discussed tonight as well as for the more traditional um, uh, dimension of, of European action uh, delivering because what I fear is that uh, Europe uh, uh, can uh, be in danger if um, we are not delivering I say we because institutions in Brussels we are not delivering. Uh, And and we are keeping the people frustrated, uh, giving the impression that we are talking a lot of things in our our bubble, but not delivering. What we need is to be focused, to be determined, uh, to be concrete and and to deliver. Uh, I think this is the key to reestablish the confidence and the trust between the citizen and the political and institutional level. Uh, Otherwise, we will face... uh, I mean, the, the crisis that uh, our democracies are experiencing in the United States, in Europe, um, will, will continue to, um, to deepen uh, and, and to restore trust and to restore confidence and to restore and to rebuild this link between the citizen and the elected people and the elected institutions, institutions need to focus and deliver. So that's what I hope for the future of Europe.
0: Thank you very much for that. And Claudia, what would your word be?
2: I mean delivery implementation that's 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 a, a really good one i think if i think i would say on the one hand what i really want to see is power because mm. this is what we need but what i fear to see is soul searching um this is this kind of constant thinking about what we really want to do and the world is changing so much and what is our place so I think there's a difference between what I expect, soul-searching, and what I really would like to have, power in, in a positive um, way. Well, thank but, you. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you both very, very much for that. I think uh, if there's anything I take away from this, is perhaps fewer words and more dancing when it comes to EU defence. Um, well, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much to my speakers, uh, Claudia Major and Arnaud Donjon. And to all of you, our listeners, please join me next time where I will be asking my new guests more views about Europe and what they think the future of Europe is. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Well, I hope you found that episode as fascinating as I did. Thank you so much again to my speakers and to all of you for listening to this episode of What's Next for the EU. Feel free to share this podcast on your favourite social media platforms. And don't forget to tag the EPP at EPP Group. We'd love to hear from you too. If you want to get in touch, you can reach the European People's Party on their website, www.eppgroup.eu, or on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Until next time.